Everybody here has the potential to be a hero. No matter how ordinary you think your life might be or what a regular person you think you are, God can do something extraordinary with your life. We've been talking about that for the last five weeks. This is the last installment of a series called Heroes, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. Think past sitting here facing a stage listening, and imagine you're sitting in a living room enjoying a conversation or listening to a conversation. We're going to transform the stage into more of a living room and less of a place of performance, and we're just going to have a conversation today. The Bible is really powerful. And in that book, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that that word is living and active, sharper than a sword. It penetrates into dividing soul and spirit. It judges your thoughts. It judges your heart. And over the last several weeks, I've shared story after story with you about people in that book who did something heroic. People in that book who may seem kind of normal, just regular people But because God interacted in their life, because of their faith, they were able to do something extraordinary. The stories we told were about people with faults, people with problems, people with fears, and God used them to do something extraordinary. So today we're going to talk about a story in the Old Testament that has some heroic characters in it. And I've asked for the help of author and illustrator and artist and older brother of our worship pastor, Joel Close. His name's Alan Close. Alan is graphic design artist. He's author and co-founder of a company called Dust Press. You can see more about them. He came today to share with us a story that's about some heroic characters that did an extraordinary thing for God. Not too long ago, One of Alan's friends came to him and said, I've got this idea, and then Dust Press was born. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Dust Press is about, what you're trying to accomplish. They're publishing comic books based on Old Testament stories, and that's what he's going to share with us today. Mark Carpenter came to me through a friend and said, hey, I've got this idea, this crazy idea. What if we took the stories from the Bible, stories from Scripture, and did them as comics? Now, that's not a revolutionary. It's been done for years and years and years and years. But... The way that we're being taught in our church community, the things that we're learning, the things that are becoming important to us, all revolve around the idea of Scripture in context. When you understand where the people in these stories were coming from, when you understand the political and sociological and even environmental things that were playing into these stories, the ideas behind them, the themes, and the things that God was trying to say through and with these people are so much more evident, so much more alive, and so much more captivating, I think, and even applicable. People might, their first reaction might be, well, that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. How can that be applicable to me today? These were still God's people. These were still God's creations. He endowed the ideas and the talents and the gifts and the personalities and the passions in these people that still exist in us today. We long for community with each other and with our God. We long for peace. We long for justice. We long for all these things. Those elements have not changed in all of human history. So that's kind of where we started from, is we want to tell these stories, this idea, this God who has been striving for community with his creation, 
and then also the stories of the people that are trying to achieve the same, to reconnect with this God. And we wanted to do the stories of Scripture justice. And this is a very rough book. This is a difficult book. It's heavy. It's hard. It's bloody. It's dangerous. This is the most revolutionary book on the face of the planet. We wanted to really pursue this and show how passionate and how revolutionary these stories really truly are. So there will be spots in this book as we're reviewing it today where you might go, oh, that's a little, that's a little out there. But it's important in the telling and the realization of the world in which these people existed in the realities that they coped with on a daily basis. What your comic book has done is, it's different. You could just turn to 1 Kings 18, which is where this story comes from, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal is one he's going to be talking about. You can just turn there and read that probably in two minutes and three minutes maybe if you're a slow reader and be finished with the story. But it's kind of like a movie where it, it becomes a little more real if you don't just read the words on the page, if you look at it in its cultural context with culture as its backdrop because the Bible was handed down oral tradition for centuries before it was ever written down. So there's a cultural meaning of all these texts that we talk about and stories that I tell on Sundays. There's, there's a cultural significance and a backdrop to all those stories. So what this does, uh, it helps it come off the page. It helps the words begin to have meaning and images in our minds and, and it just makes these stories and scriptures uh, come to life and even be more applicable to our life uh, today, 4,000 years later, than the story you're going to hear about today. So let's jump right into this story about Elijah and sure. the prophets of Baal. Absolutely. This story starts in 1 Kings chapter 18, but we're going to go back. I'd like to read a little bit before that to give a little background on some of the characters in this First of all, we have uh, Ahab, who is the king of Israel at this time. A little bit about Ahab. Chapter 16, verse 30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Anybody recognize that name, Jezebel? Yeah, she was no good. She was, she was bad news. Not a common name. Not a lot of kids uh, not in the a, class Not a common Jezebel. name. No, that's, that's not something you want to name your kid these days. So uh, let's jump into the story. This is Israel. We're in northern Israel in its third year of drought, three years straight without any water. Now, the reason it's in this state in the first place is because Elijah came to Ahab, Elijah, this prophet of God, this wandering prophet, and he said, you've done all this evil. You've done all these terrible things. And as a result, it is not going to rain here until you bring yourself and this country back to God again. It will not rain a drop on here. So we're three years into this curse on the land now. In Jezebel and Ahab's court, they are systematically going through the countryside and weeding out all the prophets, all the teachers of God, all the devout followers of Yahweh, and they're killing them. They're slaughtering them one by one in public, in private, anywhere they can. If you are a follower of God, your life is in jeopardy. And this is what's happening on a regular basis. But then we're introduced to this man, Obadiah. This is Obadiah. He is the keeper of the palace. And it also says that he was a devout follower of God. Now, let's sit on Obadiah for just a minute. What can we suppose 
by his position, by his job, about him as a character. I mean, keeper of the palace, that's a heavy title. There was a lot that was involved in that. You would have been responsible for all the food and water that came in and out of the palace, making sure everybody that was part of that whole entourage was taken care of. You would have been responsible for any entertainment that came in and out of there, any diplomatic encounters and all those sorts of things. So this is a guy that had to have been a great people person, very productive, very resourceful, good at delegation. You may know some people like this. This is the kind of person that Obadiah must have been. But this is what he was doing. As a devout follower, it's my job as a storyteller to try and portray some of these characters and some of these things that are going on. But I had to suppose, it says in Scripture that Obadiah was sneaking prophets of God out. He was sneaking prophets of God away and stashing them in caves, hiding them away in caves. Fifty men in, in, in two different caves. So he had a hundred men um, stored away. Now, again, third year of drought under an oppressive regime, and you've got a hundred people hidden away in the mountains, in the hills. Mm-hmm. It's tricky to feed a hundred people. If you've ever planned any sizable party, it's tricky to feed that many people, get them food and, and drinks and all those sorts of things. But can you imagine doing it under these kinds of conditions? Can you imagine doing it knowing that if there was any kind of mistake, if anybody saw something, your life would be over? This is how Obadiah is serving God at this time. He's putting his life on the line. And at the same time, there are others who are out and are teaching God's word. And as a result, they're being rounded up by Jezebel's brute squads and being slaughtered in broad daylight. This is the brotherhood of faith right now in this time. It's this brotherhood in hiding, and it's also this brotherhood in death and in in sacrifice. So we're going to fast forward through this a little bit. Ahab, the king, sends Obadiah out to try and find some food and water for his livestock. So he heads out into the desert, and he runs into Elijah. But he knows this is the guy who has put this curse on the land. But he's also a fellow believer in God. So he imagines he has this brotherhood. He has, finally, he has somebody that he can talk to about this, that can understand the struggles and the trials that he's going through. And he goes on for all of this conversation, talking to Elijah. He goes on and on and on about all these things that are happening in his life. And Elijah says, yeah, I don't care. Just tell Ahab I'm here, please. You know, the big deal. And this, you know, Elijah's reaction to Obadiah laying himself out there and really pouring his heart out in front of him, this kind of gives us an idea of who Elijah was. We have a third party in dust. His name is Kent Dobson, and he's a tremendous scholar. He recently completed four years of study in Jerusalem. Uh, Any guy that can read Hebrew is just, you know, that's a big brain to me anyway. Kent also leads uh, a lot of tours over um, in the Holy Land, uh, stopping at many historical sites and that sort of thing. So he has just this tremendous amount of knowledge. So Kent does our commentary uh, in each of our comic books. Really heady stuff, really challenging things. But this is what he says about Elijah. He calls Elijah the unstable prophet, easily angered, bent toward fits of depression, alone, lost, and restless. This is the kind of guy that he was. He was brash. He was in your face. He didn't care what you thought about him or what he had to say. He was going to say it. This is the way that God created him. 
These are the characteristics and the passions and the drives that God put in him. Obadiah goes back and tells Ahab that Elijah has arrived. And Ahab and Elijah have this interaction. And Elijah essentially issues a challenge. He issues a throwdown. He says, listen, you're screwing this up, Ahab. I've given you plenty of time, and you obviously haven't turned things around. We're going to have a throwdown. We're going to go to Mount Carmel, and you can bring all your Baal prophets and all your Asherah prophets and, you know, bring the whole crew. And we're going to go up there, and you're going to sacrifice, and I'm going to sacrifice, and we're going to see who is God. We have the runners that head out, and they go out into all the countryside, all these different markets, and, and they issue this challenge, and they talk about how Elijah has issued this challenge, and the whole nation, it says the whole nation of Israel came to Mount Carmel to see this. And Elijah gives them all one more chance, one last challenge to stand up for Yahweh, to stand up for God and do what's right. And he stands on the top of this mountain, and he says to them, he pleads with them, He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And again, as part of my job being storyteller in this medium of sequential art, it's my responsibility to pace these things out and and to project that. And um, so it was important to me for the reader when we came to this part to understand that nobody said anything. The scripture says they were silent. And so we have two panels after Elijah has shouted this proclamation, this begging for, for somebody to respond, two panels where just nobody says anything. So crickets. then he's really upset. Just hearing the crickets chirp. Sure, absolutely. Big cricket moment there. So now he's very upset, obviously, and says, fine, if that's the way it's going to be. He declares, he says, I am the only one of the prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, again, a little window into Elijah and how his brain's working. Is he really the only one of the prophets left? He just got done with this interaction with Obadiah. And Obadiah told him at that time that he had stored all these men away in caves. So there's, there's an element of pride in Elijah. He likes being the loner. He likes being that guy. So he is a little out there. So the Baal priests sacrifice their bull. And this is one of those elements that it's really important to Mark and I to show not necessarily everything. That's... That's over the top. But it's important to us to show contextually what these people saw. And this is a very bloody scene. The idea of sacrificing an animal is a dramatic and heart-wrenching, awe-inspiring thing. So we show this. And it's important, again, as a storyteller, for me to project the kind of chaos that was involved in this Baal cult. So we see them sacrificing Uh, this animal we see them doing their dancing and running around and shouting and praying and they go on and on and it says they went on for the first half of the day and uh elijah he thinks this is pretty funny he starts mocking them after a time and he says to them he says shout louder surely baal is god maybe he is deep in thought or busy with something and this is actually a, a pretty literal translation of the hebrew in here it says or he stepped out to relieve himself Maybe he's taking a nap. Shout louder. Wake him up. Obviously, Baal had never answered a prayer. I mean, the challenge is, whatever God brings fire from heaven, that's the one that's the true God. And they're like, okay, you're on. But Baal was a false god, but they still had hope that he would answer. They were still saying, okay, he's never answered us before, 
It's never filled them up. It's never given them what their hearts desired before. But all of a sudden, they've got this challenge. So it's like, okay. They'd probably done this, made sacrifices to Baal before, but he had never answered. He'd always been silent. So here they are years later, years and years of of following Baal, they they still think that he's going to answer. There's an interesting part in the Jewish legend behind some of this story. In part of the Jewish legend, it says that the Baal priests actually stowed a guy underneath their altar and had planned on when they did their prayer or whatever, uh, they were going to have him fire the thing up from underneath. Well, God wasn't going to have them, you know, thwart that plan. So, according, again, according to the Jewish legend behind this, uh, a snake came that was sent by God and bit the guy that was underneath the altar and killed him so that that wasn't going to happen. So, if you can imagine, again, according to the legend, the, the priest who's doing the prayer and things is going, fire. And the guy's got the flint. Fire. <laughs> fire now, please. Fire. So, anyway, that's, that's just some of the... That's some of the fun stuff that I get to dig up. So if, that's, if that legend's true, they knew that Baal wasn't going to answer. Sure. They knew it. They already knew it. They were still just going through the show. Mm-hmm. So then it comes for Elijah's turn. I wanted to say about where they were cutting themselves. Oh, yeah. And what they were, in those religions of the East, they were thinking, that they, it was very common to think if, if we cut ourselves, if we bleed, if we beat ourselves, if we mutilate ourselves, this God is going to hear us. So it says in the text, they cut themselves. And they literally were taking knives and cutting themselves. So they would bleed to say, God, Baal, whatever your name is, uh, hear us. And that's a big contrast to the book of Exodus when you see the Israelites crying out to God, not through cutting themselves, not through mutilating their bodies, but they were saying, God, help us and rescue us. And in the book of Exodus, it says, God heard their cries. So that was a foreign idea for them to just think of a God that just heard their cries. And they didn't have to go through all this ceremony and all this human effort and all this cutting to say, hear us. You just read the book of Exodus and it says, this God, Yahweh, heard their cries. It comes to Elijah's part. And again, this is one of those moments um, as a storyteller that really excites me. Because in the scripture, it says, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. And, and that's pretty much all it says. And then it goes on to the next part of the story. And then he did this and this and this. But if you were a Jew there standing on that hillside and you saw Elijah taking these 12 stones, this performance art that he was doing, this would have said volumes to you. Because at this time, again, the country is split in two. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south where Jerusalem was. And that was part of Ahab's plan with worshiping Baal and everything. He didn't want the people in his northern nation returning to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, to to participate in the sacraments down there. He wanted to keep them in the north, and that's why they instituted this, this worship of Baal. And what Elijah is saying when he puts these 12 stones down is he's saying, we are still one nation. We are still God's people. We are not divided. In God's heart and mind, he wants us together. And if Ahab is going to keep you out of Jerusalem, then we're just going to bring Jerusalem to this hilltop right here and start things anew. So Elijah does his part of the sacrifice. And again, as a storyteller, I really wanted to contrast the difference 
between the Baal priest when they sacrificed the bull and when Elijah uh, sacrificed his. Again, according to Jewish legend, these bulls were twins. They were identical to each other. But we see, you know, Elijah extending his hand and transferring the sins of the people onto this animal. That's what this sacrifice was for. So that this animal would take the place of the people and the people would not have to die. And then, again, a little insight into Elijah. He loves getting under their skin. He loves digging at them. So he says, you guys stash somebody underneath your, your altar. We're going to you know, plan to have him fired up. Just so you all don't think I'm pulling any tricks, let's dump 12 jars. Again, the number 12, very significant. 12 jars of water over top of this sacrifice. 12 times over and over, just dumped it on there. It was soaked. And um, this next page was probably the biggest aha moment and the biggest blessing to me in, in the creation of this book. As I was sketching this out, I wanted to show the altar after the water had all been dumping over top of it and filling up that trench. That was, that was a big part of this story, this trench that was filled with water around it. And I thought, well, they just poured all this water over a fresh sacrifice. This animal had just been killed. So what would have been mixed in with that water? as it flowed down over that, that animal. Blood, exactly. Blood. Now, as many times as I had read this story, as many times as I had heard it growing up in Sunday school, that idea, that image never, ever popped in my head. But here it is in the text, this giant neon arrow going, when Christ was crucified, when he was on the cross, they pierced his side with a spear, and the scripture says that blood and water flowed from his side. This is a giant arrow pointing ahead in time to Christ and the sacrifice that he would be for us on the cross eventually. The Baal priests were going on and on and praying and dancing and doing all these things for over half the day. And then Elijah gets up there and says this one simple prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And immediately after this prayer, we have this. This fire comes down from heaven. Just plunging down. And in Jewish tradition, anytime God was represented in flame, it was in the shape of a lion. It was in the representation of a lion. So we have that, that silhouette, that, that outline in the midst of this flame. And the flame consumed everything. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the bones. It consumed the water in the trench all the way around it. It was all uh, licked up. Imagine the, the prophets of Baal are probably like, oh, no. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. Let's get out of here. Yeah. That had to have been perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like when uh, you ever had, had this happen when you're working on something, you're trying to get something open or, or trying to get a car started or something like that. Then you have a friend come up and go, let me try it. And you're like, yeah, I've been working on this for two hours. And they go, and yeah, it works. And it works. Oh, yeah. so frustrating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I imagine they were scared, you know. And uh, the first thing. Well, the, the Israelites all of a sudden are like, okay, he is God. No more wavering between two opinions. No more a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Yahweh. It's all God. You see on page 19 where they're saying, the Lord, he's God. Lord, forgive us. Praise be to Yahweh. And then the next words out of Elijah's mouth are, 
uh, seized these prophets and they killed them. All the prophets of Baal. He said, done, get rid of them. And then you have to go get the book to read the rest of the story. The story really takes a great turn. It's a really awesome story. And this book is being used by, by youth pastors and, and, and teachers to, to share this story and make it, come, make it come to life. I want to just share a little bit about some of the results that you're seeing from, from this effort of putting this in print and illustrating all this. Uh, what, what are some of the results you're seeing from, just from this first publication? It's incredible across the board. Again, I, I, I have to say... Donnie, that I'm, I'm probably the one that gets the most blessing uh, out of any of this. But um, a lot of times when we go to um, retailers or publishers or some of, the, some of that kind of thing, that one of the first, um, one of the first words, questions out of their mouth, and you have to forgive them this, this is their market, but they, they ask, well, what's your target market with this? Well, you know, if you want to go traditionally, it's the boys ages 12 to 16. But... That's not what we're finding with this. I have little six-year-old girls that come up to me and, and tell me how much they love this story. I have 86-year-old gentlemen that come and say, reading through this now has just made me look at Scripture totally differently, has opened my eyes and, and really changed the way I perceive these things. So it's all across the board. Um, one of the most exciting things I've heard was from my 17-year-old babysitter. She read through this story, and she said to me, after reading this, she said, I want to go back and read the scripture again. I want to see what's going on ahead of this. I want to see what comes after this. It's so exciting. And to me, if this book does nothing else, if it can inspire people to get back into scripture and to read more, to ask questions, to challenge their minds and hearts, to challenge those of others, and to say, wow, is this the way that it, it really happened? And to even question it and say, I, I don't think that's the answer. I, I'm not proclaiming to be an expert on this by any means. As a storyteller, this is how I'm portraying this. And on top of that, doing this book, I see these characters from the Bible in a whole new light. Mm -hmm. I see them as people, mm -hmm. as human beings like you and I, with the same fears, with the same challenges, with the same passions, the same gifting, personality types. They are not that different than you and I at all. And yet, they're following of their faith, the following of their God has resulted in stories that have been told over thousands of years and written down because they were willing to follow their God, to pursue their faith. So it's my goal. Maybe, you know, somebody who reads this or somebody who discovers these kinds of things, maybe it will inspire them to pursue their God and their passions a little bit further so that 3,000 years from now, there will be a book written about the exploits of this person who had the faith to follow their God and really pursue yeah. you know, the, his heart, his mind. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan, for coming uh, all the way down here from Grand Rapids and sharing this with us.